Whether you're responsible for a cutting-edge startup, leading a Fortune 100 company, or topping the charts with your next music release, one thing is for sure. You cannot afford to ignore the seismic shifts that AI, the metaverse, or Web3 are bringing to your door. Yeah, and today we sit down with the visionaries visionary, a true futurist, Kelly Richards, whose long list of notable collaborators over the last few decades include, get this, Steve Jobs, Jerry Seinfeld, David Bowie, Prince, Tom Rudgren, just to name a few. Yeah, Travis, I mean, Steve Jobs said this about Kelly as she was his right hand in the launch of Apple Music and several other things. Quote, Kelly has a knack for seeing possibilities others don't and for seeing around corners as a visionary. Seinfeld went on to say, Kelly has her finger on the pulse of the future of entertainment and technology. Yeah, and today, this interview right here, you're in for a treat because we're gonna find out what she thinks about the future of music, the creator economy, and how disruptive tools like AI, blockchain, and NFTs are gonna be unlocking big, big business models in entertainment and other spaces on episode four of the Web3 Show. Yeah, uh, here we go, here we go, it's the Web3 show, before you know it will be Web4, then Web5, Web6, Web7, but now it's Web3, so let's all go to heaven on a podcast, yeah, this ish is the best, learn and laugh with Travis and listen to Chris, Donna lives in the house with Sophia and Nova, talking about AI to help you get over, yeah, like I said, it's the Web3 show, now you know what you're getting, so let's freaking go. All right, Kelly Richards, welcome to the show. And I can't think of anybody better to talk about kind of your path to Web3, where we are right now, through the entertainment industry and technology industry than you. So everyone can understand who they're listening to over the next little bit here. Um, tell us kind of your entrepreneurial and corporate career path and that unique pattern recognition that you had so that everybody kind of level sets on your unique vantage point coming into this time today. Happy to do that, Chris. It's just going to take a few minutes. It's not a 30-second elevator speech, so I'll do it as fast as I can. Yeah. Um, I was uh, one of those people at a young age, specifically the age of eight, that knew what they wanted to do for a living when they grew up. Um, always been a visionary. Uh, always at the convergence primarily of music and tech, but also entertainment and tech more broadly. Um, and I had wanted to be a record producer after watching George Martin behind the Beatles. So I literally studied to do that all through high school. I went to recording academy after school and everything else, and then was told, forget it, you're a woman, you can't do it, it's lockout. So I pivoted and became a young exec at a major record label at EMI, working out of the Capitol, the round Capitol Tower in Hollywood, uh, out of college, and uh, responsible for managing the artists on the roster and signing new talent to the roster. Uh, from there, I had grown up in Cupertino in Silicon Valley and had had the pleasure of having Steve Jobs as my mentor from when I was 16. Um, I went, I uh, got tapped to go to Apple uh, from the label, and this is 35 years ago now, um, to launch the initial focus on music and entertainment for the company, which I did uh, well before iTunes. And people mm -hmm. go, gee, there was something on music and entertainment at Apple before iTunes. Yes, there was. I was sitting there with my mortar and bricks, paving the foundation, <laughs> making sure that the industry, the musicians and the filmmakers were all using the Macintosh as their tool, and their partner of choice to create the content they were doing. We had a vision, uh, it was pro-facing, we had a vision for consumer-facing, which became iTunes, but couldn't get arrested internally, making that happen until Steve came back. So That's, that's awesome. I want to actually, real quick, yeah. as, you, as you jump into the rest of that, because... 
being a huge fan of the Beatles as myself, I love the Beatles. In fact, I made some uh, AI Beatles stuff on on a website, AI Telegraph, their brand new album, quote unquote, fictitious that I made up through AI. And I want to ask about that real quick. As a Beatles fan, going to Apple and then knowing that Beatles were Apple records and then you're going to Apple and then here you have that sort yeah. of that sort of issue. How what was what was the conversations about that? Uh, you know, Apple Music, Apple Records. How, yeah, and there the was no conversation about that. There was no conversation. Apple basically ignored it um, until it came home to roost. Uh, and I was um, and am a Beatleologist. Um, was in touch with Apple Corps, um, still am, in fact. Uh, and basically, I was responsible once the lawsuit came down for managing the three pages mm. of all the things Apple couldn't do in music. Hmm. Uh, however, once Steve came back and wanted the Beatles on iTunes, he personally brokered the reconciliation. Nice. With, you know, the surviving Beatles, Yoko and Olivia, Apple Corps, and um, got that uh, constraint, that restraint lifted uh, and dissolved so that the Beatles could finally find a home on iTunes. So it was a long, circuitous journey, but that's basically the short version of it. That's beautiful. So anyway, then uh, uh, in tandem to being at Apple and, and my corporate career, I had become um, an award show producer for talent uh, talent producer for award shows and celebrity fundraisers. And so I built this massive network of relationships with artists and their managers, which would be very helpful to me later in my career. When I left Apple, and it was because Steve came back and said, we're not going to focus on music and entertainment for a while. The company was one quarter away from dying, mm. uh, running out of money. And he had to write the ship. And he told me point blank, not going to be focusing on this for a while. So I went a mile down the road and it wasn't until uh, four years later that iTunes launched. Hmm. I advised him on the side. You know, he tapped me for my insights and, and input, but uh, I, I had tasted freedom at that point. I have always stayed pretty much within a mile of the mothership. I'm still there now. I can't seem to escape the tractor beam. It's my hometown. Um, but but anyway, uh, I guess I'll always be tethered to Apple. It's in my DNA. Uh, so that's my corporate experience. When I left uh when I left Apple to start my consulting practice, it's been 25 years this last month, if you can believe it. Um, I basically just did the same job I did at Apple for a long time for other companies, bridging Hollywood and Silicon Valley with new technologies, new business models, et cetera. Um, and then add to that uh, another piece that I'm doing more and more these days, which is my role as a trusted advisor one-on-one -on -one to creatives, entrepreneurs, innovators, to help them flesh out and navigate their next path on their journey holistically, personally, and professionally in a way that makes them, uh, you know, really aligned with their own values and passions. So that's the other part of what I do these days is work as a trusted advisor to that kind of, uh, that kind of clientele. So how did that lead you, you know, you, you had a show how we originally met a way long, maybe a year ago, uh, feels like 10 years ago now, cause that's the world of web three, but you had, yeah. Um, a show on Real Vision, and uh, it was all about Web3. You had some really great interviews on it. When did That was you... a short-lived series, Chris. Only five people, but yes. Yeah. When did you, though, kind of um, get exposed to the world of Web3, blockchain, crypto, metaverse, NFTs, yak-yak, the, the, 
the totality of it. You know, the, the truth is, as someone who has been dubbed a visionary, you sound arrogant when you call yourself one. Um, and I really have skated on the edge of, uh, of, of early, early developments of technology. I was doing things during the second life years, at, you know, a company called Doppelganger and other things mm-hmm. that were metaverse ventures, you know, 20 years ago. And it was just too early for mass adoption. That's the story of my life is living inside a crystal ball, being right about where the technology and the innovation is going, but missing the timing. The crystal ball is cracked. <laughs> so I've never been wrong, never been wrong about the impact of a technology. The problem is you can't, it's really hard to line up the timing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's so true. It's so true. The space moves. And, you know, I think Chris and I have been, have had a little bit of that as well, is that we see where things are going. People tend to come to us to to figure out where they're going and then we'll educate them. And then by the time we educate them, the world has changed again. I call it the curse of the visionary, either way you look at it. <laughs> but in it any event, little, yeah, um, so, so yeah, I've been involved and, you know, people like Chamath Palapataya was early in crypto and, and, and blockchain. And he and I were pals from way back and, and the Nullsoft, uh, you know, days before AOL acquired his company and Spinner, Winamp, all that. Um, so I, I've sort of tracked these by the people I know in my network. I've been sort of privileged to see things early before they really took off. And of course, the situation with blockchain, well, I should say Bitcoin specifically, not blockchain, um, it was all a, a buzz in 2016. And then it crashed. And, I, and those early adopters lost a lot of money. And then it came back five years later. And, and you know, and then we all know what happened last fall. So um, the crypto stuff is not is not new. It's nascent to the masses, but not to people that have been involved in technology for a while. Same thing with blockchain. Uh, same thing with metaverse. Uh, NFTs is a little more new, but these are the various components that comprise Web three as we know it. So where do you where do you see in your crystal ball? And we we understand the disclosure that you know, like like Travis and like myself, our timing is not always uh, the best, but we're not wrong usually on the macro shift that will come. And Correct. Then, the trends. If you were yeah. if you were you know looking through kind of where you sit today and kind of what you learned through some of these other patterns where, you know, you went through um, a, a thing to drive adoption of hardware like the Macintosh and things like that for, yes. for creatives. If you're a creative today, whether you're a producer, whether you're a you know independent label or just an artist or whatever, what do you think the near-term opportunities look like? I think, I think ultimately everyone's hope is that we're unlocking this new renaissance, right? But but how close to that do you feel like we are, even if you're wrong? And where do you think Boy, I tell you what. your energy? Yeah. I mean, and there's other trends that have shifted that's part of that answer as well. You know, and music specifically, let's use that as an example. The, the power center used to lie with the labels. And an artist that wanted to reach a mass audience and get big had no choice but to be signed to a major label. Uh, I was at the forefront of changing that dynamic with Todd Rundgren in the mid-90s, David Bowie, Prince. We were all dabbling with artists going direct to fans, uh, early early initiatives in that regard. Um, and that shifted the power cord to the content creator, the artist. And now another macro trend that's happening is that that's the power has now shifted to fans. Mm. And not only do fans hold the power, but they are now able to participate in the creator economy. And by virtue of these various technologies that exist, create merchandise, for example, around a certain fandom and participate 
and a percentage of those proceeds, along with the artist, with an uh, a, you know a fandom that has a massive following, fans can now earn a living doing that kind of thing. So all of those macro trends are happening, even around what we what what you just brought up. So today's artist or any content creator, filmmaker as well as music, um, has all manner of opportunities they haven't had before by virtue of things like TikTok, um, NFTs, the metaverse. The key is to stay abreast of the various spokes on the wheel that are accessible to some to a creator. Learn about them. Explore who the who the leaders are in the various subsectors, and um, have product available to reach the audience you want to serve through any and all of those vehicles. Have a team around you that knows how to optimize that. Um, in addition to your manager, your lawyer, and your agent, um, and and really, you know, dabble, play around with some of that. Actually, immerse yourself in it. When will it get to a mass audience? I mean, listen, I, I, one of the people I interviewed on that Real Vision series last year that you liked so much, Chris, was Steve Aoki. Steve is an artist at the forefront of embracing some of these technologies. He's dove, he's dived in head first. So he's had NFTs and been at the forefront of all of that for, gosh, at least 18 months, two years now. And he's been a master at involving brands and pulling them into his metaverse activities and his NFT initiatives. And he's a great example of someone who's just fully embraced the technology and is running with it to his, to the, to his own advantage as well as that of his fans. So don't yeah. forget the fans as part of the equation is the big is the big message there too. Yeah, I want to I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned something about David Bowie. Yeah, and that guy was such a visionary. I was actually watching an interview with him with, on Conan O'Brien last night, and he was talking about his video game that he was releasing called oh, yeah. Omicron. And it was like, it was like a little metaverse type of little thing. And they were walking around and I was like, oh my God, this was like yeah. 15 years ago. No, no, like, more, more than that. More 20 than years that. ago. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, more it's, than am that it's amazing. Really? And Prince too. These guys see ever the guys that were really tech savvy, that were artists. I, I was privileged to be in working with a lot of them, certainly first through Apple and then directly. Um, and my, largely because of my uh, collaboration with Todd Rundgren. But these guys were all dabbling with the same thing. The internet was coming with high speed. They could see it. They could see it was a way to reach. And at that point, the internet was a holy grail. Right. And now this was a way they could go direct to their fans and engage with them. And in the case of Todd's Patreon app, for example, catch the similarity to Patreon, mm -hmm. which came out years later and is, is worth whatever it's worth, $8 billion, say. We were too early. But... The point is, Todd and Bowie and Prince and I, we were all talking about these different models, and each of them had their own version of artists going direct to fan, their own fan club, if you like, digital fan club, where an artist could put out one song at a time at their discretion over a two-year period, and they would be underwritten and in a subscription model by their fans and have the freedom to create as they chose uh, to do it and not be beholden to a label and I must have a new album every year and you, you tour behind that mm -hmm. was breaking the systems and enabling for that richer engagement with the fans. So I have a, you know, as it relates to that, right. Um, there's always like that, that lever that sometimes you see coming, sometimes you can't see coming. Um, the, you were inside of Apple. I don't know if you were there when the iPhone launched or if you had moved on, but the, 
the the one that we know of now is is what the platform that is essentially the iPhone and iOS what that did to unlock kind of this whole web 2.0 yeah no 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 iPhone no apps market right, which is a right. multi billion so, so like literally we don't move to a web 2 which now is this walled garden kind of big tech you know platforms own everything and but at the same time we were able to activate new forms of distribution for fans for artists you know TikTok now is big ways to monetize with apps right mm -hmm. yeah we can monetize yeah but but the ownership was there so when we think about like what what was happening you know 30 years ago 20 years ago with Rundgren and with some of the things you've already mentioned and that patronage kind of model that model was right it's still right today but there wasn't really that catalyst to make it become the norm or the de facto way what do you think because in similarity right now there's a lot of things that are right that are putting fans directly in business with brands through whenever it be MFTs, where be that. But what do you see? Will it be a hardware thing? Will it be something else? What do you think could be the trigger, even if we don't know what it is yet, that will kind of move from a web two kind of infrastructure into unlocking some new platform that we haven't ever thought of yet in web three? Oh boy, that's a broad question, but I will say this, Chris. Um, you know, I am guilty of being a perpetual Apple uh, evangelist. Can't help myself. But I will say that uh, with the with Apple coming out with its AR and VR initiatives through through glasses, uh, headsets, um, and and I don't I'm not sharing anything that is um, I, I don't know anything that's um, proprietary. I'm sharing everything I've seen in the market and my own uh, intuition about the trend. I think Apple will crack the code on what Google attempted to do with Google Glasses some years ago mm -hmm. and come out with the sexy, if initially overpriced, device that will take the masses along along on the on the magic carpet ride. Um, and that's going to come sooner than we know. Uh, it's going to get announced at WWDC this year in June, and then I expect it will be more mainstream within 18 months at the right price point. But that kind of a thing is, you know, VR, we launched QuickTime VR in 1993. I mean, come on. We had to wait this long for it to become mass adopted. But Apple stands to be the leader in the sector with the right technology, the right software, the right user experience. Um, it's just a matter of weaving the right threads together, and Apple happens to be a master at that if they haven't lost the magic, and I don't think they have. Mm. But all these years in VR, for example, users have had to suffer headaches with these clunky headsets and you know, uh, heavy and expensive and ill-conceived and not enough good content. And I think that's gonna Apple has a chance to break that wide open and make it sexy and 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 have mass adoption. Agree. We've been actually talking about that for a long time. So I have another yeah. show called Bad Crypto with Joel Com, and we I think we started mentioning that back in 2017. Mm -hmm. Ocul mm -hmm. Oculus comes out, right? And we're like, eh. This is okay. It's okay. Magic Leap gets billions of dollars. Like, it's okay. But however, I was at CES and saw the latest Magic Leap, and I was like, holy cow. Like, like wow. That is and they're like, yeah, these headsets are only five grand. I'm like, yeah, wow. Okay. But I go, once Apple drops this, once Apple goes, boom, here's our headset. That's one reason why I got LASIK surgery, because I don't, these glasses don't have lenses anymore. Uh, but I got I got lazy because I'm like eventually I'm gonna want these badass AR goggles from from Apple and I'm gonna walk around and I'm not gonna have to have this tech neck thing anymore looking at my phone all the time damaging damaging our necks right. I think, like, I think it'll be more like the Mission Impossible one or two whatever 
two or three, one of those early Mission Impossible films with Tom Cruise climbing up, you know, scaling the face of this mountain. And he had the early pre-Google glasses, things on, but they were, and, and he had like picture right. in picture. And that that's the way it's going to wind up, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I still have a couple of friends that are glass holes from, uh, from the Google days. <laughs> they still have, they have them in like their shelf, you know, we used to call them glass. Yeah, holes. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, okay. So I so, don't know if I answered that question no, as, you, uh, adequately. You I mean, no, you did. I mean, I, again, I wasn't looking for a lead there. I was just curious what you think, you know, might be the mover. And the reason why I bring it up is because, you know, if we look at the last two cycles here, we went from the late nineties where music was the most profitable it ever been, right? We we're making four cent CDs and selling yeah. them for 17 to 20 bucks and everybody was milking it. And exactly right. And then Napster kind of basically broke the model and um, and they ba basically got demonetized, you know, for a period of the last several decades. Um, we democratized access to everything from publishing to distribution to whatever with social and with web and, and with all these tools. Uh, but now with, you know, things like NFTs, with things like artist communities, with DAOs, mm -hmm. with things oh. like that, mm -hmm. this notion, and I say it's a notion because there isn't that killer use case yet, but this notion that an ecosystem of, um, bands and business with fans for lack of a better way of genericizing it is like right at the fingertips but at the same time the labels still have like how do we re-monetize in your mind well, one way we're going to do it is another one of the episodes you watched of that real vision visionary series a year ago which was with if you watched this episode it was with um, bob dylan's son jesse his oldest son i didn't see that and, uh, yeah i didn't see that yeah before. so so you want to go back and watch that one jesse dylan and Walter DeBrower, co-founders of a venture called Snow Crash, like the book. Yep. And um, Snow Crash launched a year ago tomorrow, something like that. And um, that's what they're in business to do, is to create NFTs initially for the major labels and their catalogs, starting with his dad's catalog at Universal. So uh, that's one of the things that they're in business to do. And, and if the, anybody's the interesting thing, yeah, the interesting yeah. thing about that, and and again, I'll I'll advertise my limit of knowledge here, but you know what I do understand is like if I'm a new artist, so we've got some artists that'll be performing in a show we're doing that have they're not signed, and they're they're kind of building up a pretty big groundswell. They've got a nice audience. Um, they can go direct, but they don't have any encumbrances. Their music's all original, so there's no sync licenses. There's no like minutia that has to be dealt with if you wanted to package or containerize that in tokens in some way and and provide a different value of utility at different levels that's cool if you're writing new music but a lot of music as we know is sampling something from the beatles or sampling something from and so anytime you're creating from that old world model or that existing world model there's this friction because in some cases even if you wanted to pay there's no efficient way to do it um yeah so, so we got a solution for that too. Okay, so what is that? Uh, one, one solution anyway that I like to suggest that people check out, yourselves included, uh, is, a, is a, a startup called Mint Tangible. It's minttangible.io. And this is helmed by a female CEO who used to be an exec on legal counsel at Red Hat uh, in the Linux world. And um, what they do is they have come up with a process that digitally binds intellectual property, royalty, and legal terms to NFTs on the blockchain. And I've got a really smooth mechanism for making that easy for content creators. I'm very enamored with what they've done. So I will recommend that you check them out as one example. 
But um, the other thing I will say, and I've said forever since leaving the label system myself, I do not recommend artists sign themselves into what I consider a form of slavery. Mm. And this is where Prince and I started working together all those years ago when he changed his name to the symbol and re-recorded all his own masters. Mm. Um, you know, if the technology today enables artists more than ever to retain their own masters, their publishing, their brand, you don't want to give that up. That's where you make all your money. <laughs> Um, in addition to touring. Um, but you never really want to give up your intellectual property if you can avoid it. And if mm. you do do a deal with a label as an artist, you want to do something like one or two albums and have the rights revert back. That's so beautiful. that's another conversation. It's not yeah, all yeah. about the technology, but I have to insert that. because no, it's, I feel so it's so true. It. Actually, one of the biggest independent artists in the world right now is a, is a rapper by the name of Tom McDonald, who owns all of his own music. Yep. He basically writes his songs. Him, he writes it with his girl Nova Rockefeller. She's a videographer. He basically builds all the sets, and they make all their own videos. Mm -hmm. He goes in and makes all his own sounds and music, and then all the lyrics. They record it. They release it. It's two people. He has no manager. He has no record label. He has not. It's just him and her, and they're making millions of dollars. And one of his last songs, Ghost was number one in the pop charts. It's yeah. crazy yeah. what this guy's doing. So this is the way things are going more and more. So we're still in this sort of teeter-totter between the legacy world and labels and what they can do now versus what they used to be able to do and an artist going direct to fan on their own terms. So that's kind of one of the macro it'll, trends we're in the middle of right now. It'll be interesting, Travis, too, to see, like, you know, with all the AI tools and stuff you've been playing with and we've been, you know, tinkering with to create content of all forms, whether it be video, gifts, you know, music, what have you. Yeah, and whether you're you leveraging know, whether, um, old riffs or uh, of a notable songs through yeah, stems. Just, or, yeah, we're or just purely like, original. Let, let's say you're doing all original stuff. You know, what's interesting is yeah. how we kind of fell into the problems we have today is everybody just clicked the box saying accept terms and conditions and never read it. That's answer. right. That's because right. You were so enamored with what the utility was. And I wonder if we'll repeat that lesson, I haven't read the terms and conditions on some of the AI tools we're using, Travis, like who owns it, right? So in other words, if you use some of these new tools to create stuff, what's the certainty around ownership? And then is that an opportunity um, where maybe the platform of the future that is that will be, you know, not only an open AI thing, but that literally will respect the fact that the creator. You know, that is, that is changing before our very eyes as we speak today, Chris, we're right in the middle of that, or I should say at the beginning of that journey. I literally just published an article this morning on two different tech providers who came up with um, bringing Steve Jobs back to life mm. by using his voice and training an AI to sound like it was having an interview. One was with a fake interview with Joe Rogan last fall. You may have heard of that. Mm -hmm. And then there was one that just came up a, a week or so ago, uh, which had Steve doing a demo like he did, uh, like a macro presenting and, and showcasing the power of chat GPT from 22 years ago. I myself bought that hook, line, and sinker. I was like, oh my God, how did I miss I saw that one. I actually, I saw the thing about <laughs> chat GPT. I didn't realize that was, yeah. I, but it was I fake, was but it was fake yeah. AI training, right? So I wrote this, hor I just published this article this morning on LinkedIn we'll to it. about, we'll to it in the show about notes. all of that. Yeah, and, and also um, uh, Val Kilmer, was able to reprise his role for Top Gun Maverick, even though he's had throat cancer and lost his voice, because Symantec, a tech company out of the UK, 
did the same kind of thing with him 18 months ago and has since been acquired by Spotify, by the way. Mm. So that's but, amazing. I'm curious yeah. about that because that's one thing that, you know, um, we were talking about potentially having an AI show where we were interviewing people from the past, right? Like if you have their voice or if you have, yeah. like, for example, everything John Lennon's ever said, he's written, he's, you know, he's, he's written all these poems yep. and songs and yep. all these great interviews that he was on. We could literally take his input and then ask him questions through Chat GPT four, which is coming out That's soon. That's exactly right. It's both exciting and terrifying. And is it legal? That's the and question. That's the like, big who, question I ended who, my article with. Yeah. Who owns you the copyright for that? Yeah. The legal ramifications. Exactly. Well, not, right. not just not just like not just legal. What are the ethics around it too? And and I'll I'll that say too. like this like. You know, Bruce Willis recently, as we we know, he signed over and sold essentially because he's not able to perform at the same level. He sold, I think it was like his deep fakes or his NIL to uh, some company that can now basically reproduce him as an avatar, similar to like what we've seen. Indeed, in indeed. That's and, right. And, you know, so more and more deals will happen like that. And so there's a couple of things there, but the ethics around like um, the innocent side of it are what if a family, you know, doesn't want their deceased loved one famous or not to be in perpetuity immortal and this is essentially a form of especially especially if it's being used for commercial purposes where someone's going to make a profit from it and even if they're in the equation right i mean money can always maybe but at the end of the day some of these some some people might have certain belief systems or things like that where they go you know what no, that's the I ethical want, side yeah, yeah i don't want this yeah. and so there's a whole new ethical conversation in parallel to the legal mm -hmm. ramifications that you know, and there's probably a fair use ramification too. It's like if I wanted to create a, a funny little parody snippet, and if I basically said this is not the real John Lennon, this is an AI version, then it's like what you know gets what, you guys, off the hook? We are in the wild west on this, and it's not the first time. Every single big technology innovation, people dabble, they try things out, they get their hands slapped. You can't do that. But first, there's a lot of innovation and dabbling and experimentation going on. And this is no exception. You know, so I don't know where it's going to wind up. You know, what will be interesting is when uh, when we have the first person who made it all the way to death without being canceled, only to be canceled in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, by the way, on this chat GPT thing, I have to say, um, now the the Writers Guild of America is trying to figure out how to support their writers because. You can type in what's going to happen with the next episode of a season, you know, in the season of a show in chat GPT. And it's pretty good about pre predicting what will happen based on what has happened. And so now the writer is going, oh, my God, am I going to be replaced by a robot? So, yeah, this, the ramifications of this are all around us and still just emerging. That's such a good thing. It's such a good thought, because just yesterday, I don't know if you saw this or not, Kelly, but Corridor Digital released their own video that was on green screen and they were able to play with AI and animation and create their own uh, anime, seven minute anime, all made with, with um, uh, stable diffusion and using the quotes and then being able to take a character and keep that character style throughout the whole video. They totally reimagined how animation is gonna work in the future and in less than 24 hours, it got well over a couple million views. And it's just, uh, it's unbelievable what they're doing. And it, they showed step-by-step, step, here's how we did it. Mm -hmm. And here's how you can do it. And we're just a small team of four people. No, so this is where it's heading. And some people are terrified. 
And some people are embracing it going, wow, this becomes my new business partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, and, you know, think about, you know, when we think about other media and, you know, winding down here, but, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, because we've, we've kind of come full circle again, back to the old days with streamers, right? Like we, we cut the cord several years ago, most of us, maybe some people just more recently, because we were tired of paying almost 200 bucks a month for shows we never watched. Right. And we got Netflix and then, you know, and then Amazon came out with prime and then, Okay, I'll have that because I'm already a member there. And now everything that was in Amazon Prime is now another subscription. And so now we're back up to 200 bucks or 150 I just had this conversation with someone yesterday, Chris. And now we're going to pay more because everybody cut the cord because they want to pay all the money. And right. now they're paying more money than they ever did on the individual channels. And then at the same time, so, what we know what we know is going to happen is there's going to be another mass consolidation, right? Like there's going to be a Paramount that's right. plus merger with Discover. With blah, 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 that's exactly right. In. And then the content yeah. is still the thing, right? You have to have a hit. So now we're at the model where I think it was even on CNBC today. They were talking about, you know, now we're back to a hits model, like almost like the record days of like Motown, like back in the day when you had to have nothing but yeah. hits. Right. And so now with streamers, you have to have hits and we're already doing managed dissatisfaction again, where we're only releasing Tombstone once every week or 1920. And it's like pissing me off because I don't watch a lot of TV. But when I do, I just want to sit there and watch it. I don't want to have to want to binge watch it. Yeah. So it's yeah. like so funny that this yeah. these forced macros that are happening where content creation and quality content creation at speed and scale is going to be needed more than ever. And now we have these tools that allow four person shops to compete with the biggest anime company out exactly there. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and then, and then, so you're talking about a bunch of things here. And then there's the whole consolidation back to a few, you know, media companies controlling the whole thing. And maybe even going back to a cable like consolidation at some point where somebody comes up with a package that has five of the best streamers for the best price you can possibly get. I, I think that I'm going to make a bold prediction here. Maybe other people have, have speculated on it too. Again, I have no insight about this. That's to do with my alma mater. I don't think it's an accident that Bob Iger returned to Disney to take the helm uh, just before the holidays. I believe, you know, he sat on the Apple board forever. Uh, I believe that Apple will make a play to acquire Disney mm. uh, with Bob's help. <laughs> and, um, and, and and just take a look at look no further than Apple's entrenchment into sports in a big way last year with ESPN. So even if the DOJ tried to block such an acquisition, uh, Iger could spin out ESPN to Apple, or or they could acquire Disney. Uh, but DOJ again, too much, too big, monopolistic. Uh, spin out the theme parks. You know, there's all kinds of ways to do it. But if Apple and Disney come together. That's going to give Netflix and the others a massive headache because of the juggernaut that, that would create, um, yeah. and starts to lead the not trend to, towards. Not the to mention, not to mention that those two companies, I think, have more cash on their balance sheet than any two companies out there. So the, the amount pretty of much, pretty much, right. So it's and imagine being able to take my... your AR goggles and then walking through Disneyland or Disney World, like. And tying those things yeah. in. And as those yep. things get married with these digital experiences where you can wear these goggles everywhere, not be tethered to some big pack or some big computer, and you're just able to go free while and all over, the, the, the creativity is going to be amazing. Yes, yeah, I would agree. Universal, Universal better start shopping Netflix and Amazon for a deal, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what comes next. But one thing's for sure. We can't predict everything with certainty, but we can pretty well read the tea leaves and watch the trends and watch these patterns for ourselves. So there you have it.
Amazing. Well, we'll have to have you back again in uh, six months when some of this stuff comes true. And it was a pleasure having you on today. Thanks, Kelly Richards. We'll put everything in the show notes, guys. It's another episode of the Web3 Show. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in each week to Web3 Show live on FinTech TV each Wednesday. And look for long-form audio podcasts with guests on this audio podcast channel each Monday and Friday. Learn more at web3show.io. And we will see you next time.